Welcome to Digital Metropolis, a podcast about the future of cities and those building it. We talk to cutting-edge leaders in urban planning, technology, and policy in order to understand the evolving implications of the space we inhabit. Tune in to learn about how digitized property, urban technology, and artificial intelligence will transform the way you buy, work, move, and imagine. My name is Roman Shamakov, and you're listening to the Taiwan Report, Digital Metropolis. Hi, welcome to the Taiwan Report. Welcome to Digital Metropolis. Could you introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, everybody. My name is Manuel Zia, or in Chinese, Cao Mahua. I'm German-born and raised in Bremen and living in Taiwan for the last 15 years. Three years Japan, two and a half years Korea, one and a half years in Tianjin, China. Great, Taiwan veteran. And you specialize in energy. Yes, so I have my own company for most business support, which is specialized in offshore renewables. Fascinating. Energy, as you and I both know, is the fundamental force of pretty much the modern world. And Taiwan is in a fascinating, a very particular situation with its energy needs. So could you, could you shed some light on what makes Taiwan's energy needs so unique and pervasive in Asia? First of all, we have to understand that Taiwan is an island. So when you see sometimes my conversations on LinkedIn with US officials, they sometimes leave this out. It means because you're an island and Taiwan doesn't have any own natural resources, no oil and gas, no coal, nothing. It has to import all its energy needs. 98.6% of energy needs are imported. So if there aren't any renewable energy sources, Taiwan simply depends on imports which is, as you know, not the best situation right now. Not military-wise, but you have a lot of uh, rising economies like India, Russia, China, and we're going to buy up all the resources we have on this world. Absolutely. Uh, that doesn't put Taiwan into a comfortable situation if something goes awry. So I'll list some statistics about Taiwan's energy, and maybe you can help us make some sense of it. So. Taiwan imports 98% of its energy. Yes. 93% of it is fossil fuels. Yep. 76% of oil comes from the Middle East. Exactly. Saudi Arabia makes up 30% of Formosa's petro purchases. Mm -hmm. And in 2017, Thai power's reserves got as low as 1.7%. And we got the uranium for the nuclear power plants, free nuclear power plants. Yeah. All of them depend on uranium imports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't take a political science expert to know that slight variations in global political situation can really disrupt Taiwan's energy situation. Exactly. So what do you understand as the vulnerabilities in Taiwan? Well, currently, the Tsai administration and particular TSMC are thriving now with economic numbers we get out now from U.S. investments, particular U.S. investments, because U.S. companies, they demand from Taiwanese manufacturers to use renewable energy to produce their products. So TSMC only got these big orders from the U.S. because they promised the U.S. customers to use renewable energy. And that's actually the only real advantage they have compared to Korean other competitors mm -hmm. here in the region. So that's really the key issue. And, and you might have read the news that they purchased a big chunk of Orsted's Zhanghua offshore wind farm mm -hmm. to secure the energy needs. Yeah, so 
Tsai Wen has emphasized the new initiative in Taiwan, the 2031, that you have taken under your wing as the driving force of your work, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. We have to go back a little bit in time to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to understand everything. So I have had many different companies in town. My first company was Taiwan Ship Inspection, mm. which was specialized in inspections of vessels with dangerous goods like coal, gas, chemicals, uranium, etc. With my former business partner, Joseph Katz, who was at the time a CDI inspector, Chemical Distribution Institute, and based in London, working for the IMO, mm. International Maritime Organization. Mm. So that was my first company. Then I had some other companies, one based in Germany, which is called Far East Trading Company, specialized in trade. And my mother-in-law, she is was the chairwoman of the Taiwan Housewife Mixer Association in Taichung. Mm. So they, they have become famous in the 80s for forcing McDonald's to let students and pupils sit at McDonald's without paying every hour for mm. food, which is not healthy for them. Yeah. And then in the 90s, they found a new direction for the organization, which has a very strong focus on environmental issues. Mm. And because they are so big and powerful and have most members in town, biggest association in that field, the Tsang Men administration, when they won the election in 2016, we wanted to thank the society by allowing 10% of the legislator seats to be given to non-party members, religious groups, NGOs, associations, because mm-hmm. she wants to have the entire society in the parliament to be reflected in the government. So a good friend of my mother-in-law, Chen Man Li, got into the parliament. At that time, I think she was still a member of the Green Party and later on switched to the DPP. And she was the main chairperson, the main force behind changing the Renewable Energy Act. Mm. The Renewable Energy Act in Taiwan is simply copy-paste from the German EEG law. The only difference is between the two, we don't have an auction house. Like there's an auction energy house in Dresden, so where you can purchase and sell your energy. Got it. That makes sense. So when when was this environmental law? 2016, when 2016, she got elected. Right as she entered. Yeah, the Ma administration already started with Formosa 1, Phase 1, but it didn't go much in, in, into any direction. The Miali County Farm. Yes, right. the first one. Originally planned four turbines, we ended up with two because we ran out of budget. Interesting. What is the problem with maintaining a budget and getting this investment? Because the, the Ma administration, we didn't check the Taiwanese companies at the time. So they mm. choose Swanker Holdings, which they provided some oiling for cabling. Mm-hmm. So when you wire cables, you need some oiling for them. And they choose that company because of the close relationship Chairman Tsai has as an offspring of so-called mainlanders, mm-hmm. which is a funny description, Wai Shongen. And... So we provided them budget to build four wind turbines together with Dong Energy at the time, now Austed mm-hmm. and Macquarie mm-hmm. Capital. And they chartered UBI, which is a Chinese insulation company for the bonopiles, mm-hmm. to do the insulation. They ran out of budget because we simply underestimated the weather. So, so where is the project in its lifetime right now? The two turbines are still up and running. Mm-hmm. Even we have huge corrosion problems now. Under the site administration, phase one happened. So we have 26 turbines in total now. 
Got it. So can you go into a little bit more detail of what this environmental plan is that, as you mentioned, has been copy and pasted from Germany's ESSG? Yeah. So because at that time they decided to follow the German model, mm -hmm. Chen Manli, she approached me and asked me to build a company just for one function to get the European know-how integrated into the Taiwan economy. Mm -hmm. So it was my main purpose since 2016 to convince European companies, particularly in the supply chain, to build up the Taiwan offshore wind infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have any supplies, you can have as many developers as you want. If there are no supplies, they're worth nothing. So that was my main purpose. What is Taiwan's new sustainable energy goal model, the 2030-50 plan? Yeah, so in her integration speech last time, she repeated again that her goal is to get 20% renewable energy by mm. 2025, which is very challenging because it's simply based on solar and wind. Mm -hmm. So currently we have a little bit over 6% renewable energy, which is mainly solar. And for solar farms, we have a lot of issues in Taiwan. First of all, Taiwan's landmass is very limited. 80% are mountains, 20% mm -hmm. are flatland. And the flatland, you have the entire industry and population of 24 million people. So it's extremely crowded. The only way for solar would be to go on rooftops. And I tried that experiment five years ago with Taiwan Sugar Corporation. The first building we approached had 13 different owners for one building only. Three of them were living in China, four in the US, two in Vietnam, one in Canada, and the rest was spread out all over Taiwan. So you can imagine it's extremely complicated and hard to convince to share the little profit you get from Thai power by selling the energy into the power grid. That sounds like a nightmare negotiation. Yeah, so uh, solar is really not the best option. And then the government tried to look for new opportunities like there's some fish farming like in Jai and Budai or in Tainan and convince the fish farmers there to put solars above their artificial aquariums where they farm these fishes. And of course, we rejected it because we want organic fishes. We don't mm -hmm. know the impact of water and electricity don't get well along. On top, you have a huge issue with the solar maintenance. So Taiwan has a subtropical climate. It's humid. That means dust and other things easily stick to the solar panels. You have to clean them permanently. The efficiency rate is not high either. So solar is not a good option. Onshore wind is very limited. Taiwan uses offshore wind strategically since Li Donghui. We simply placed them near the coastline as an obstacle for a possible invasion from China. So that's the main purpose. Because we're out of sight, and you must understand in Taiwan, same as in Europe, you can sue someone for every single issue. So the shadow of an onshore wind turbine falls on your house, you can sue them. You hear some noise because of the rotation of the rotors, you can sue them. Hmm. Or the transformers when they produce the energy. So the lawsuits onshore on the private side against the operators, there is just free range. That's, that's also one reason. They are post or located along the coastline. So there are too many risks, basically, for both solar and onshore wind. Yes, biomass is still limited. Same issue, landmass. Nobody wants the stink of the food waste you, you dump in there to have this organic process to produce biomass. Geothermal is only one company permitted to do the drilling. There are no survey data in Taiwan, which is a huge issue. Mm. The Taiwan government simply assumes if you have hot spring, you can do 
geothermal power too. <laughs> it's an assumption. It, that's not how it works. Yeah. No. So the only company which is permitted to drill more than 2,000 meters, which you essentially need for surveys, is China Petrol Corporation, CPC. Mm. Nobody else. Got it. Are they actively exploring geothermal power? I visited their demonstration site in Ilan. They have a lot of issues there with Aboriginal people because the Aboriginal people feel invaded in their own space in the mountain region. And I had read an article of a Swedish developer who visited Taiwan, Klinemon. We have now an office in Taiwan. First time we visited the demonstration site, one of the workers from CPC wanted to take a photo with the Swedish because, you know, for Taiwanese people, they look very exotic. And they don't have HSE regulations, health safety environment precautions so mm. she dropped into the hole and died wow and that's very common for state-owned companies to have no safety regulations at all huh. so the prospect of developing a well-functioning geothermal sector probably very unlikely it's likely but the, it has to be more dysregulated it has to be more regulated by the private sector because the government sector cannot catch up and if you ask them, they are not much interested. You must understand the state-owned companies, CPC, Thai Power, and so on. It's written in their corporation constitution to supply town whatever is needed. Mm -hmm. So CPC has to supply oil and gas. That's what they do. They purchase oil and gas wherever they can find it as cheap as possible. That's mm -hmm. the mentality and the world. And Thai Power uses the coal fire plant in Taichung. Even it's high-polluting, but it produces... 5.4 gigawatt power, which is secured energy. So from their perspective, there's nothing to change. There's that reliability. So I'll ask you about the last energy potential nuclear power, which used to provide 20% of Taiwan's energy. It's now down to one generator in Pingdong, which mm. is going to have its license run out in 2025. Can you give us a little insight into the controversy and this political back and forth around nuclear energy? Well, first of all, we have to understand that nuclear has a huge lobby behind it. So the big players, Elf Aquitaine from France, who have very strong grip on Japan, for example. So Fukushima nuclear power plant is still not turned off completely, still operating. Then we have some U.S. companies who have companies like BlackRock, backing them up with their investments. So building now these days a nuclear power plant makes no sense because it's far too expensive and to operate it is even more expensive. In case of Taiwan, funny enough, under the Ma administration, the only port which could handle nuclear material in Geelong has been dismantled. He used that as a symbol to China to show, no, we're not going to import any nuclear weapons from the US, but at the same time, you cut off your supply. So... Mm -hmm. That's one big issue. No country in the world has any idea how to actually supply Taiwan. You cannot just put it into a DHL parcel or any parcel company and send it here. It's highly radioactive. Mm -hmm. That's one issue. And then we have a storage issue. No country in the world wants to take Taiwan's nuclear waste. Mm -hmm. I guess you read the articles of Orchid Island, Lan Yudao. The Aboriginal people there, when you visited them, a lot of them were suffering from the side effects of radioactivity. Nobody really cares because we're a little bit out of focus. We are an mm. offshore island of Taiwan, very remote. But for my projects in renewable energy, we are very important. So sometimes go there. So the answer to all of these energy dilemmas, in your view, is offshore wind. Offshore wind 
current powers, tidal power, wave power, outtake. The, the benefits of being an island is <laughs> you <Yeah>. have wind <laughs> and waves on all sides. So where is Taiwan's investment in wind power at the moment? Well, because Taiwan is paying currently per kilowatt one of the highest feed-in tariffs, used to be the highest, now it keeps up and down regulating very randomly. We have plenty of developers in Taiwan. First one was WPD, Wind Park Manager Deutschland. Mm -hmm. So WPD, I'm from Bremen, we are from Bremen, I know them pretty well. Mm -hmm. And they favored by the Taiwan government because they invested into InfraVest. InfraVest was a German startup company, first one investing into onshore wind and solar in Taiwan. So they pumped 200 million euros into the purchase. And they have been favored by the Taiwan government to build the Yunlin offshore wind farm, which is, by the way, the largest alone standing offshore wind farm in Asia, hmm. on the paper at least, was planned. And since we delayed over a year now, we have seen Guanyin fading out in Lipi. Mm -hmm. yeah. So right now it's getting a little bit sour. The biggest front runner at the moment, of course, is Orsted. Orsted is Denmark's state-owned energy company. So Denmark has a population of 5 million people. We were the first one to develop offshore wind. Mm -hmm. And uh, the division which is doing offshore wind was originally a startup company. So they came from Dong, incorporated them and even changed the name to Orsted. Mm -hmm. Dong stands for Danish oil and gas, but we sold it to Norway. Got it. Now, I understand they're also a Japanese company and then there's an Australian wind investor. Yes. What are their stakes in Taiwan's wind? So Macquarie Capital has a daughter company called Green Capital. The purpose is simply to attract investments for the bank. So they need investments for the insurances, for long-term investments in green energy. Hmm. That's what we offer to the clients all over the world. So that's the main goal. We were also the first one to finance Formosa 1, Phase 1, Phase 2, now Formosa 2, and Formosa 3, all these projects financed by Macquarie Capital, simply to increase their profile globally. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to be developer first, but they saw, because in Formosa 1 was breaking apart, they saw the need to do on their own. Because at the end, Swanko didn't work out as planned. Mm. So with, at the beginning of Formosa 1, when the elections were coming up in January 2020, the government wanted to see the wind farm operating and running. And they gave the chance for the Taiwanese supply chain to do it all the Taiwanese way until 2020. Do whatever you want, just get it done. They couldn't get it done. So Macquarie Capital had no choice but to invite 87 so-called consultants who fix it at the end, last minute. Because all the jobs was only to do the installation until a certain degree and then Swanka was supposed to take over. But we didn't, mm -hmm. yeah, because we ran out of money because we offered the shares to Stone Peak at the end, U.S. investor. Yeah, so will Macquarie also continue to develop Formosa 2 and Formosa 3? Yes, because it's simply, for them it's not much money. For mm -hmm. them it's just peanuts, but it increases their profile to say, oh, I'm now in the future energy business and I am in a front runner in, in Taiwan. So Taiwan will lead all of Asia in this industry. So for them, it's not really a lot of money. Plus, Australia also involved with coal supply. A lot of supply for Taiwan's current energy needs are covered by Australia. 
Uh, that's yeah. very interesting. So from Acquire, it's a, a marketing project. And for Australia, it's securing a long-term client. Exactly. So Australia wins so also. Win-win, yeah. <laughs> so what have been the difficulties in attracting foreign investment from Europe into offshore? Well, you have to distinguish the structure of offshore wind. We, we have the developers. We have plenty currently. We have Mitsui together with Northland Power from Canada and Yushan, which is owned by a Canadian in Singapore for tax reasons. And they have a Hylon wind farm, which is still far away in 2023. We have Copenhagen Offshore Infrastructure Partners. They partnered up with China Steel. Thai Power is also supposed to build an offshore wind farm. And they assigned Foxcom and the subsidiary Shinfox to do it. Of course, we have no experience, so we're struggling a lot. Somehow out of the focus, nobody talks about RWE, which is Germany's largest energy corporation, conglomerate, all over Europe. And they partnered up with Asia Cement. And uh, we're trying to build the Chufang offshore wind park in Shinjo, which has, by the way, the best conditions of all. The strongest wind currents, mm. a more solid, stable rock ground, and it's closer to shore. Mm. So that's the developer side. Normally in Europe, when you have an offshore wind farm, you have the so-called EBCIs. The E stands for equipment, P for procurement, C for construction, I for installation. So you assign, as a developer, one EPCI for just one purpose. So one does the offshore cabling, one does the installation, one builds the towers, and so on and so on. And then they have, below them were the suppliers. And in Europe, it's quite common for having above 10,000 suppliers for one offshore wind farm because there goes just so much into it. Mm -hmm. And it's a very human capital-intensive industry. You cannot outsource it. Uh, Catapult in the UK, we try in our experiments to automize it using robots. But it's still a very early stage. So it, you need human resources if you want to build it and operate it. The problem is, first of all, Taiwan doesn't have any law, particularly for offshore wind. I give you an example. So I have clients who want to operate crew transfer vessels who bring the technicians to the construction site and later on to wind turbines. So it has to be done on a regular base. You have to climb up the tower, get into the nacelle and check the conditions of first the meter box, okay, or does it need to be replaced? Is there anything which needs to be replaced, etc.? Because we always have to run an optimum. If wind farm, which doesn't spin and rotate, doesn't make any money in any electricity. So... Instead of using the law, like in Europe, Taiwan is simply copy-paste the law of YAS. Hmm. Because they for us, similar. You transport people. When you talk to the port authorities, they didn't really get what I meant. They're like, why, why I have to have 12 crewmen? doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not really a vacation vessel. There's not much space, and you have to squeeze so many people into a small space. Oh, I can sleep inside. And I said to them, lady... If you want, you can come out with me. It keeps shaking. It's, the Taiwan Strait has very strong currents. That's why you want to build wind farm there. The significant wave height is very high. So you get shaken around. You cannot sleep. So if you really insist on having 12 people, they will get fatigued and will cause accidents. Mm -hmm. It's just one example. Then, of course, for example, Blood from Denmark is trying to work with Century and Steel and Taoyan 
to build the foundations and Sangwin gave the chairman Navalai again. I, I think a big reward for being the Taiwanese businessman of 2020. But for the Danish side, um, missing all standards, safety standards, quality standards. But Taiwan doesn't have qualified welders. Taiwan doesn't have any people for coating, fabrication. And frankly speaking, besides CDCI, nobody has a record of huge projects. And CDCI, yes, is based in Tianmu, Taipei, but the project records are mostly abroad. Hmm. So it's also for them first time to work inside Taiwan. Everybody's learning from the bottom. And then you have the issue of the infrastructure. So the turbines, the nacelles, the towers, the blades, they have a very long length. You need it because you need to stay above the waves. If the waves keeps hitting the blades, they might get damaged. So it's heavy, it's long, and you don't have the infrastructure and the ports. Mm -hmm. So because, again, the Taiwan government insists that the developers have to finance everything. They ask TPIM, Taiwan Port Maritime Corporation, state-owned again, to build the infrastructure in Taichung Port. We couldn't finish it in time, so we leased out one terminal to Orsted, Terminal 32, which works perfectly now because Orsted fixed it themselves. But the other terminals are still, after so many years, are still under construction, still not up to running. So, for example, WPD, because we're under time pressure, they use Kaohsiung port, they use Anping port, they use even the small fishing port of Budai. And they try to convince Formosa Plastics Group to allow using the Mylia port. But this is a private owned port. You cannot force a private company to release the resources to project. Mm -hmm. So you see, we have maritime issues, we have fabrications issues, we have lack of human resources and mentality to manage a long-term project. Mm -hmm. You need preparation, planning, execution, then the quality insurance and auditing all the time. Taiwan doesn't have many qualified inspectors. So in the past, it was okay because you simply fly with everything in, you import everything. But now we have COVID-19 pandemic, People have to stay in quarantine for 14 days and then have to isolate themselves for additional seven days. So that's not an option anymore. And now comes my part in. So I take care of the supply chain. The companies I'm talking to, they're all SMEs. They don't have so much cash on hand. So they keep saying, if I don't get a contract from somebody who pays my initial startup, I don't come to Taiwan. So most of them are hesitating. I convinced a few to come into Taiwan by first organizing, let's say, workshops, seminars, making training sessions, start from the soft skills. Already there, we have a lot of issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I feel like I'm ambassador between all sides <laughs> because you have to understand like a company like China Steel, where they did the steel manufacturing for many years. This is completely new to them. And it's very hard for them to say, I have to learn something new. I need help. We never save it. We find just excuses. Oh, COVID-19. Oh, Christmas is coming. Oh, New Year is coming. Uh, then we have Lunar New Year. There's always something around the corner. Many excuses. And you have a face-saving issue. When you have a political capital everybody's using to protect their interests. So... A lot of companies, particularly the state-owned, will run to the government and say, protect me, I'm part of your localization plan. Mm -hmm. Didn't the Industrial Development Bureau say, 
we want localization and I do it to protect me. Don't let these foreign companies come to Taiwan, protect me. But can we deliver the quality without any experiences, without any know-how? Yeah, the answer is unlikely or it takes time and patience to figure out the skills yeah. to deliver. So let's say hypothetically you had an all-powerful pen that could write laws in Taiwan that would get instantly enacted. What do you think is necessary to bring Taiwan from 6% to 20% quickly and efficiently and do it through offshore wind? Well, offshore wind is uh, part of my business. I'm very close to the Ocean Affairs Council or Marine Academy. We have different titles at the same time. We have 400 researchers. We are in charge of anything happening in the ocean. Most people even don't understand we are above the Coast Guard and the Navy. We can use the resources anytime. And huge lack in town are simply survey data. We need big data and a big style in, to analyze it. That's the first most important thing. So one example, Yunlin, why is WPD struggling so much? Because we underestimated the soil conditions. The soil is muddy, it's soft, you have strong currents, and it's very hard to do insulation in such conditions. So it was one big mistake nobody thought about at the very beginning. Nobody thought about getting very accurate, up-to-date survey data, all aspects, the currents, the soil conditions, wind conditions. We need 3D, 4D and 5D data of everything. And then we need to forecast how it's going to develop. So climate keeps changing. My close friends in Scotland, they struggle now a lot about being covered by snow. I just talked to Canada yesterday. They seem to be fine in Toronto, but a little bit down south, there are a lot of snowstorms mm -hmm. in the US. So the climate keeps changing. And uh, we have to take it everything into consideration, which is a huge task. I think next important step is because Japan is here, Jara is here, Mitsui is here, Hitachi is here. The Koreans are also here, Samsung and many other companies, CS Tower. And we should treat it as a regional project, not as a national project. So you mm. cannot change the flags of the vessels and change the crews because you enter a vessel from Taiwan to Japan, then from Japan to Korea. Everybody wants localization, everybody wants uh, nationalism, benefit their own economy. But if you keep on going like this, Europe is successful because of the European Union. In that case, it worked well. Not everything is perfect about the European Union, but it works pretty well. Do you ever imagine an Asia-wide energy grid? Yes, and I'm looking very much forward to Japan. Japan declared itself to be a hydrogen nation by 2030. Mm. They want a green hydrogen. There are certain aspects of it. So first of all, they want to get rid of all the energy needs they have, particularly from the Middle East. They want to build a huge depot for all vessels crossing the Pacific Ocean, building an artificial island just for hydrogen power near Japan or mm -hmm more south, we choose the location. Mm -hmm. And we also want to get Korea involved. But as you know, all the Asian nations are fighting about historical issues, territorial issues, Dokdo, Takashima, Senkaku Island, and so on. Small islands we keep fighting on. But I think for when just renewable energy, we should once stick together and maybe have an own IMO. In English you say, or British at least say, 
um, if you cannot beat the club, join the club. But in Taiwan's case, I would say just build a new club. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I think uh, something as catastrophic and daunting as climate change and, and emerging or evolving energy needs requires global cooperation, let alone regional cooperation. Yeah. You just outlined uh, this plethora of problems by finding just national leadership and national execution, and it's a nightmare. Why build it from the bottom up when there's all of this brilliance right across the ocean? The problem is COVID-19 at the moment. A big problem is, first of all, the mentality. Mm -hmm. The government always thinks you have to get the developers getting done something. It's in Taiwan very strange. And you must understand in Europe, the developers, all the energy companies, they follow whatever the governments tell them to do, or the European Union or the banks. Mm -hmm. They're the real bosses, both the developers. In Taiwan, I'm sometimes not sure. Mm -hmm. So it should be the government saying something, but the government is afraid to say something wrong. So they let the developers decide something. And if it goes wrong, they say, oh, see, this developer said something wrong. They, they don't understand Taiwan. Yeah, a, a blame game. A blame game because of a face-saving issue. So that's why I support a lot of NGOs, associations, academic facilities to push for an own solution. And actually, Japan and Korea are also open. Mm -hmm. So the Ocean Affairs Council has, uh, on a regular base, currently online, a lot of meetups. And we keep talking to each other. It's also the U.S. joining in recently because the U.S. is a huge investor, particularly on tidal and wave power solutions, because mm -hmm. the U.S. has 600 military bases around the world. We hope they can power these military bases with tidal and wave power. Yeah, absolutely. Final question regarding energy, and then I'd love to turn to you and your life in Taiwan. What do you see as the emergent technological potential in energy? not just in the next 10 years, but 100 years, 200 years. What do you look at and you see a lot of potential in? Well, I see most potential in the oceans. Most of the planet's surface is covered in oceans. Taiwan is an island. Taiwan has very strong occurrence in the Taiwan Strait, which is tidal power, and has one of the most stable currents in the world, which is the Kurosho Current, just passing mm. by the east coast of Taiwan. So that is very unique. The other stable current in the world is the Gulf of Mexico. But trying to convince Mexico and the U.S. to work together, well, under Trump was not possible, maybe under Biden. Yeah. yeah. But here in Taiwan, that has huge potential. So that's one part. Another part I keep always focusing on is we use the resources we have in Taiwan to power the space program. Most people underestimate that. So, for example, there's a... Taiwanese company, which is called TI Space or Taiwan Innovation Space, they have a space program. They have a branch in California supplying all the space companies in the US. So, Brewer Region, SpaceX, NASA, Boeing, they're all purchasing currently small parts, fasteners, gears, hydraulic parts. But we could use the resources here in Taiwan to power the space program worldwide hmm. because you can use the energy to produce hydrogen and other environment friendly stuff and exported it hmm. so yeah i think it's the future so we, we we have to think in different dimensions into the water not just the surface of our planet into the ground and then into the air and space so that's brilliant thank you for that that's very fascinating i feel like both myself and our audience have a, a much 
more brilliant understanding of Taiwan's energy needs. You've been here for 15 years. 15, if you count it all together, between Japan, Korea, China. Yeah, yeah, a little, going a little bit back and forth. But you would say Taiwan has become a home, a home away from home, in a way. Yeah. What first brought you here, and how has your understanding of the island changed? Well, first of all, you have to understand that my mother, she's Indonesian Chinese. Mm-hmm. My father's half Lithuanian, half Welsh. So my grandmother's from Wales, my grandfather from Lithuania. And my mother, she studied shortly after Tiananmen Square in Tianjin for acupuncture, Chinese medicine, mm. which she later on used in Bremen to treat people with addictions, particularly drug addictions, which had a very high successful rate in getting people back into society. Once her professor visited us in Bremen, I used to speak to my mother and my aunts always in Hakka. And she taught me some sentence in Mandarin. He said, oh, your pronunciation is very clear. should come to China. So I went to China in 1999 and was a little bit disappointed from China because I grew up first 10 years during the Cold War. So I heard about the Soviet Union, particularly my grandparents. They always said, ah, the Soviets are going to come. They're going to attack Europe. We have to stay behind, united the NATO. And when I was in China, I felt something similar. Again, uh, I simply was restricted. For example, I was watching German news in a cafe at that time. And then suddenly, when they said anything about China, I was simply blanked out, lost the internet connection, which was very strange to me. Funny enough, because I was young, porn sites were not restricted, as they claim, (laughs) 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 or any dating sites. Even they say it's hardly um, restricted, but at that time, 1999 to 2000, they didn't. And I told my mother that I'm quite upset in China because I'm mixed. So they said my hands are not like Chinese people. I couldn't learn acupuncture. And I felt like besides learning the language, I had no purpose in China. My aunt said, ah, visit your aunt in Hong Kong. So I went to Hong Kong. Hong Kong was, her apartment was very small, very small flat in Hong Kong. Didn't feel well there either. And then suddenly everybody spoke Cantonese at the time. There were not many Mandarin speakers in Hong Kong. And she said, okay, last chance. Visit your uncle in, <laughs> in Taiwan. So he was working for Chang'an Hospital in Taoyuan, mm-hmm. which is now famous again in the news. And because I believe the propaganda in China, I brought renminbi, I brought my Chinese visa, etc. But uh, lucky enough, I brought my passport. So at that time, we already had the policy, 14 days, visa-free stay. And I was so shocked. Different flag, different language. It's like difference, like for you, like US or Britain or Ireland. Mm. For me, it was uh, like Germany and Austria difference. Mm. And currency was different, different flag. At that time, there were the elections, 2000, and Chen Shui-bian was running, and it was right in the middle of it. And I mm. said, oh, you, you will be executed by the Communist Party if Jiang Zemin finds out what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, oh, we're in Taiwan, we are fine. So yeah. first time I learned about Taiwan was first lessons I got from Taiwan. When I returned to China, I wanted to learn more, but I later on decided to study Japanese management at the University of Applied Science in Bremen. Mm. And because I learned martial arts from a young age, judo, karate, aikido, mm-hmm. jiu-jitsu, I wanted to intensify my Japanese skills. But when I got to Japan, the Japanese company said in Kobe, oh, your CV says you speak Korean and Chinese, so you have to go with outing procurement manager for business trips to Taiwan and Korea. And then 
I was shocked to learn that Japan has a supply chain network we call Karetsu. Karetsu mm. means, well, it's called an English supply chain network. But for the Japanese and Japanese mentality, it means like being yourself, like your leg or your arm or your foot. Mm -hmm. So that's how they treat Taiwan. They think it's part of their own economy, part of themselves. And I felt very strong when I went with him to Taiwan. It's always funny. So Japanese companies, they come to Taiwan, they bring all these vans because TKR is a supplier of Honda for supplies like brakes and all the parts you need to build a motorbike. When we visited the factories, laboratory in the van, complaining a lot. And they, now the Taiwanese going to say, ah, let's have a business dinner with KTV, Lysnadis. <laughs> and then we talk about business. Yeah. They knew it's going to come up. So we always had this acting going on. Mm -hmm. But when I went with him to Korea, at that time, there was already a strong feeling. One day, the Koreans going to come to Japan and compete with us. They don't feel like we have given them anything positive. While Taiwan gave Japanese a feedback of a lot of positivity, mm. like kimochi mentality. Kimochi is like Japanese word, how to handle human relations. Mm. So in Taiwan, you call it limao, like good behavior. So you see people queuing up at the MRT. Nobody tries to cut into the line. People see that you need help. They come to you and talk to you, help you to get directions. Yeah, I can show you where is it, show me the map, things like this. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this mentality came from the 50 years of Japanese, and Taiwan's called Japan period. I was called it colonial period, but it's now part of Taiwan society. Mm -hmm. And at that time I already felt, since it's so important for Japan, I know who I can sell to in Japan or I can walk through in Japan, I should stay in Taiwan. And Taiwan is, by the way, awesomely good for supplying OEM, ODM. Mm -hmm. So I know the potential of the Taiwanese manufacturers very well. So hardware-wise, Taiwan's doing fine. Software-wise, there need to be a lot to be upgraded. Mm -hmm. So that's the next step yes. in Taiwan's development. Final question, what's your favorite dish in Taiwan? That's funny, I like natural stuff. Mm -hmm. So because I have a very close friend in Budai and his parents, we built now a solar farm in which I was involved and we have our own shrimp swamp. So it's my favorite. Simply, oh. <laughs> yeah, not sashimi, but shrimps, Taiwanese shrimps. Yeah, that's good to know. Natural ones. Got it. Well, Manuel, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a fascinating conversation. Thank you for being here. Yeah. This has been brought to you by the Taiwan Report. For more content like this, become our patron at report.tw. 就是那个台湾狗啦，最喜欢我的台湾狗了。